not how book festivals work. This is how book festivals work. Welcome to a very special event at Aberdeen's second Granite Noir Festival. My name's Fiona Stalker. I'm a journalist at BBC Scotland here in Aberdeen. It is my absolute pleasure to be introducing our dream team to you this afternoon. I'm a massive crime writing fan. I am a huge fan of Anne Cleves and I've had the joy of having a chat with her before. Um, Anne's written over 30 novels which have been translated into 20 languages and has scooped some of the world's most acclaimed literary prizes. And she's just been presented with one upstairs, which we'll tell you a bit about later. Um, the TV adaptions of both Vera and Shetland continue to pull in massive viewing figures. And we're going to find out a wee bit this afternoon about Anne's journey to becoming an international best-selling author. We're going to have a chat about her eighth Vera outing, The Seagull, um, and uh, as a journalist of many years in Aberdeen, I've covered my fair share of crime stories. And the man sitting next to Anne, Dr. James Grieve, is an absolute legend. <laughs> a senior forensic pathologist, a living legend, in the north of Scotland. <laughs> For over a quarter of a century, Dr. Grieve has given expert witness evidence at some of Scotland's most notorious murder cases. I've seen him through glass, actually and at fatal accident inquiries, but investigating unexplained deaths. He's also the go-to forensic expert for some of Scotland's most loved crime writers, including Anne, and James appears as himself in Anne's Shetland novels. And together, this delightful duo, who deal in both real and fictional crime, will share some of their wisdom and experience with us this afternoon. And, and do you just, from... Um from the knowledge that you get from James, do you, do you, even the time you've met him, recognise there's been quite a lot of changes? Do you see that as well? Yes, absolutely. And and I've got other friends who work in the field, mm. and Lorna Dawson, who yeah, I think yeah, you know, who's, yeah. who's up in Aberdeen as well, who's brilliant on forensic soil scientist yeah. and a, a crime scene manager from County Durham who helps out as well. Yes, always talking about just how how little DNA you need now to be able mm. to get a result. So. And there's a lot, um, I think cold cases are, are I, I'm guessing, a, a very good sort of um, plot and, and people love reading about cold cases, but do you think it's given the public a slightly false sense of how simple it is to go back into cold cases? I know you've worked on cold cases, James, but do you think the ones that you know we see on particularly in television is giving us a wee bit of a simplistic kind of view on it's a cold case, so I'll just crack into it and I'll resolve it. No, I mean, in fairness, just carrying on with what I've said, it's entertainment. And, mm. you know, if it's, if it's portrayed in an entertaining fashion, uh, so, for example, the fiction series, which are cold case, well, that's entertaining. Mm. But it is a reality that cold case review occurs. It's not as new as all that, though, mm. um, but, but certainly in recent years, because of the technology that has surrounded particularly things like DNA, then the reviews have become much more acute in many ways. But unsolved uh, crime has, has for many years had a five-yearly review. So back mm -hmm. it comes every five years to see if there's something new that can be applied uh, to material that remains from the original crime. Now, of course, there's a big issue. Is there material still there? And this strikes at, uh, I was having this conversation I think last night about visionaries 
and how you can become a visionary. If you can't see into the future, how can you be a visionary, uh, as it were? But the capacity to go back and look depends upon the material that's there. Um, I uh, did uh, some reworking of the World's End murders, which uh, um, Angus Sinclair was convicted of the World's End murders uh, three or four years ago. I think Lorna um, Dobson was involved and in that. And Lorna she had, had to do with that too. Um, it was because of the meticulous nature of the Lothian and Borders police productions uh, officer in the forensic science laboratory, or, or forensic scientist, who wouldn't let anybody touch any of that stuff that there it all was preserved mm. and waiting for the technology that would come along. Mm. Now, that's vision, but he didn't have that vision at the time. He was mm. just a hoarder who yeah. wouldn't yeah. let anybody touch anything yeah. and had to keep My it goodness. all. And yeah. yeah, but of course, in another, in another force, um, I think it's, it's perfectly well recognized that Sinclair uh, was responsible for at least five other murders uh, in, in another force area, and nothing uh, of value remained from the investigations of these crimes. So that's the next question is, what do you keep and how long do you keep it for and so on and so forth. And indeed, then where do you keep it? Because all of that is going to cost money and space and that's what we don't have now. One of the things I, I adore about the Shetland books is also the descriptions of the landscape um, and, and the settings. and, and, and you just fell in love with Shetland, didn't you? What, what, I did. What, I mean, and it's almost a character in its own right, isn't it? I love what? Shetland, and it will be very hard to stop writing about it, though I will still obviously go and, go and visit. I first went there more than 40 years ago. I dropped out of university, and just a chance meeting with somebody, I ended up uh, being appointed as assistant cook in the Bird Observatory in Fair Isle. I didn't even know exactly where Fair Isle was. <laughs> I come from the south of England um, and, and realised, of course, that it's a long way from, from the south of England. So I went up to Aberdeen and, and got the ferry and the old St. Clair and arrived into Shetland in the spring and went down to Grutness where you get the mailboat into Fair Isle. And I come from North Devon, so I was expecting a pretty harbour and a cafe. And <laughs> There is nothing but a jetty in Grutness where you get the mailboat to Fair Isle. And eventually, after a stormy time, it came. I've never been so ill in all my life. <laughs> dreadful, dreadful crossing. But got into Fair Isle and just fell in love with it. Yeah. yeah, as soon as I got over my seasickness, I knew that I would love it. And what just, was it? Well, why did you love it? It was springs. So there were flowers everywhere and seabirds on the cliffs. But the people were amazing. And it was just full of stories. And I love stories, and I liked cooking, and I liked working in the observatory, and, and I went there as assistant cook, which was mostly cleaning bathrooms and peeling tatties. And then <laughs> the next year, I must have done all right, because I went back as cook. So. <laughs> and, and have been visiting Shetland, and specifically mm -hmm. Fair Isle ever since. And that's why Jimmy Perez mm -hmm. in the books is a Fair Islander. And that's why he has a Spanish name, because there was an Armada ship, El Gran Griffon, wrecked off, off Fair Isle. And there were 60 survivors, so it's not outside the bounds of possibility <laughs> that one of them married a local woman. You went from assistant cook to cook to international best-selling author. What, what, how, did, how did that happen? Uh, oh, well, yes. when I was in Fair Isle, I met my husband, Tim, who came as a visiting bird watcher. And we got married a couple of years later, um, and he got 
a job, because he was a, a, a very keen naturalist, got a job on a tiny island in the de estuary called Hillbury. And it, he, it was a, a nature reserve and he was the warden there. And so we were the only residents. It's a tiny, tiny place. We had no mains electricity, no mains water. If you're not into birds, and I'm not, <laughs> not. <laughs> there's not a lot to do there, so it was a great place to start writing. At the same time, I was training to be a probation officer, so that also helped with the crime writing. So I had this schizophrenic existence where I would walk out before the tide in my oilskins and wellies and, and get to West Kirby, the, the nearest town, which is a seaside town. And the council had given me a hut on the seafront where they kept the, the kit for the pitch and put course. So I'd go into this hut and come out like Wonder Woman, <laughs> <laughs> having changed from my, my jeans and wellies into something vaguely respectable to go to court. <laughs> so that's how that went. And so while we were there, I wrote my first book. Mm. Um, I'm very aware that I'm hogging them. I'm going to let you ask a few questions in a few minutes. Um, James, are there still cases that keep you awake at night? I don't, I don't think it's the cases that keep me awake at night, honestly. It's, uh, it's the snoring. Um, <laughs> Shouldn't have so many people in your bed. <laughs> obviously. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't think that I can uh, afford myself the indulgence of, um, of doing that. Uh, you know, being a forensic pathologist and Grampian, uh, particularly in the days of Grampian Police, which was just an extraordinary organisation to work with, I have to say, and I feel deeply privileged to have been part of that. It was a real family up here, and we were all working together, absolutely together. We all had our part. We all had to uh, to do what we could do. And uh, no, I, uh, I, I don't stay awake about that. Some of the cases have been... Um, deeply disturbing and very, very worrying and upsetting, and I make no bones about it. Um, yes, they can be, they can be very distressing, uh, but I deal with that mm. and then go off to sleep. Good. Well, I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm glad about that. Um, in terms of you next, Dan, you're going. I know you're travelling to the states um, to do some stuff over there. Scottish crime writers are massive in the States, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, why is it hitting that spot? Because America's obviously got, you know, they've got their own, uh, I mean, own brand of, of crime writers, but Scotland is punching massively above its weight, isn't it? I think, Internationally. Well, I think world, worldwide it is, and it's quite difficult to get Americans to read outside their country because they're mm. quite insular. Mm. But I think, again, it's that sense of place and the regional nature because they love as well books set in Alaska or in Louisiana, so mm. there is that sense of understanding a, a place and travelling through the, the crime novels mm. that really pulls them into. And just the stories and the characters. Yeah. And it's, it's great fun. I'm going to go with Brenda Blethyn, who plays Vera, oh, because she's getting a Poirot Award, which oh. is an award for crime, <laughs> crime fiction. So, and, so and she crime is fiction. Vera, though. In my head, she, when I, she's just Vera. She's, she's brilliant. She, she trained as an actress with the director, Mike Lee. Mm. And his way of working is that the... The actor creates this this person, this character. It's not like the method where you use your own yeah. stuff. You you create this this character who's separate from you, and so she her way of of working to do that is to go back to the source material, and so she reads every book that comes out. Mm. 
she she'll phone occasionally to ask questions about well I don't this, this we've got this new director and he thinks that Vera's going to do this this and this I don't think oh, Vera would do that do you <laughs> I feel like that <laughs> so that's that's lovely it's like having a representative on set and she her, her Vera is absolutely my Vera yeah. Yeah. and and you describe this as being a per quite a personal book for you the seagull yeah you, you because it's because it's set in in Whitley Bay I think which mm. is where I lived and and when when Bren read it, she said, uh, this was really weird. <laughs> because Vera goes back into her own past a bit, and we learn a little bit more about her, her dad, Hector. She said, it was, it was like reading about my own past. Yeah, that's <laughs> nice, uh, that, not it? It is, yeah, it was lovely. James, are you going to write a crime novel? Good Lord, no. <laughs> what? <laughs> I, I, couldn't, I couldn't write anything. Some people say I can't even write reports. <laughs> We don't, I don't think we need any more competition. <laughs> let, let him carry on doing what he's good at. No competition here. Retiring. <laughs> and well, you've had lots of practice at retiring, <laughs> James. Is there such a thing as a perfect murder? You don't need to tell us what it is, by the way. No, absolutely not. All the ones you read about in the books are all solved. All the ones that occur here, they're solved. <laughs> There's not a perfect murder. Good. You know, no, no, no. We'll end on that safely. Yeah. Right, it's your turn. Sorry about that. It is your turn. Um, we're going to put the lights up a bit. Now, we've got a roving mic, because I'm very aware the people at the back, you might not be able to hear. So um, I know an Aberdeen audience. As soon as one of, them, one of you puts your hands up, it's fine. So I just need the first person to put their hands up, and everyone will go, OK, I can ask questions. So... The mic is... There's one here. There's, there's oh, one here. And one at the back. Do you want to bring the mic? Is, some, is someone here? Did I see someone here? Is that right? All right, okay. We'll get a mic to you, honestly. It's being... You can shout. Okay, shout. Go for it. It's a question to Anne. Having read the Shetland novels, Jimmy Perez, he was not ginger. He was from Glasgow. <laughs> uh, the, the question was, well, the Jimmy Perez in the books, isn't Ginger and he's not from Glasgow. Uh, no, but, but Dougie Henshaw is such a fantastic actor and he captures very much the essence of my character in that he can be hard-edged and authoritative but still kind. And it's quite hard to get a strong actor who can also do kind. And so I'd much rather have a ginger Glaswegian who can <laughs> capture the personality. <laughs> than a dark-haired actor who can't. Except it. That's good. Fine. Yes, gentlemen here. Thank you very much. Uh, I've been waiting for years for a spoof version of Taggart where somebody <laughs> bursts in with that strap line, there's no been a murder. <laughs> How difficult would it be to write a murder mystery without a body? I think it's quite tough. I think that there's a, a brilliant... Um, English crime writer called Bob Barnard who used to say more than one murder in a novel is vulgar <laughs> and I think there is a tendency again it's the lazy writing thing that that you you get a bit slow and you you wonder what you're going to do to to build the, the tension again so you just kill somebody else off and then <laughs> kill somebody else off and I think it's it's good to try and try and limit the body count really 
And I, I do watch the, the TV series. And what I've really enjoyed about the last series of Vera, which had absolutely nothing to do with me because they were all original stories, is that in all of them, they managed to sustain a two-hour show with just one body. Mm. And that's very, very fine script writing mm. to be able to maintain mm. that tension without the, the needing for more horror and more gruesome and more... Uh, yeah. But there have but obviously been cases without bodies. Well, but well, you we, see, I don't that's know if we can be point, too specific or something. No, 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 but, but, but of course, uh, it's very, very difficult to have in Scotland, certainly, uh, a, a murder and a conviction without having a body. Uh, the law of corroboration in Scotland really starts by the requirement for a body, doesn't it? So, um, so there have only been a couple, and, and I see there are some senior legal figures further up in the audience there. So. I'll be very careful what I say, but there, there have only been a couple of cases actually in Scotland in living legal memory, I think, uh, where there has been a conviction without a body, and of course the first one and most important one came from up here, mm. another first for Aberdeen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I seem to get into a lot of trouble over the head of it, there's no doubt of that. I mean, I didn't, it's difficult, although I was involved, it was difficult to work on because there was no body. Mm. And that, 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 that's, that's problematic, you see. Mm. So, um, yeah, you better make sure that the yeah. bodies are discovered, then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I've got the mic if anyone needs it. Anyone wants the lead in the second? Oh, sorry. I'll pass this to you. Um, I'd rather like to agree with this question um, that this man said about there being no body, because sometimes the, um, the emphasis of policing and psychology pervading is that you may have inclinations to do so so it's pr you know this this notion of everyone being warned against their worst nature oh yes yeah, i don't believe in that i <laughs> i no i really honestly i i i don't think that we are all of us murderers rapists uh, and criminals who just keep ourselves under control Personal view, but I don't believe that. I have absolutely no desire to kill anybody. <laughs> no, wrong, sorry, take it all back. Yeah, I'm just thinking. No, 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 no. No, I don't, I don't, I don't, think, I don't think that, uh, that, that um, we're sort of, uh, we have these things buried inside us. And, um, you know, it would be too politically incorrect for me to say that nowadays, being uh, sort of an old man, you know, I just have to be considered to be a criminal, don't I, just because of my very gender. <laughs> I don't Any like more it. more hands up? Yes, I'm going, to I'm going to get this list. Should we just pass that back, because we're all friends here? Thank you. Uh, really, for both of you, James, unlike James, uh, after working, come home, if I pick up a book, it hits me in the nose. Uh, I really find it difficult to read a book, although I can read. Um, <laughs> but well, there's a distinction there. <laughs> <laughs> But I've really got into audio books in the last year and a half. Now, listening to, I'm, I'm doing um, one of Hans' books at the moment. How much do you worry that whoever's reading the books, I find a difference in the, um, the narrators. Does that interfere with how your thoughts go? Do you have an input into actually who gets to read your books and are you happy with how they read them? I, Good question. I don't listen to them actually much. I... I don't know who, who, I think, is it Kenny Blythe who's reading the Shetland ones now? And I think he's good. And I think that 
um, Janine Burkett is reading the, the, the most recent Vera's and I think she and Charlie Hardwick were very very good because they're local and their accents are right and they, 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 they do it very well I think and I think Janine has actually won a, an award for her reading, her narration I think, I think it's, it's very, very special that's a job for you once you retire <laughs> what? Yourself. No, I was going to grow tall once I retire. I'm not completely out. You know? <laughs> it's, 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 it's an interesting point, actually, because um, I don't know if any of you read Peter May, who did the Lewis trilogy on this, one of my favourites. Um, he was, his, his latest book was very different from his other books, and I couldn't work out why, and suddenly he's writing as a female for the first time. And he, he, he had noticed himself, but the, the, there was a difference in the feel to it. Do you find, is that, because you're going from one, I suppose, yeah. to the next, do you, do you get, is that, no, do I you know it's a difference? I, or? They're just different people. Yes, yeah, so there's the not gender, gender doesn't thing. get, but, but the, the whole idea about the, the experience of, of reading a book through audio rather than, than reading it on the page is, is quite interesting. I used to work quite a lot with visually impaired reading groups. Mm. And that was fascinating, mm. hearing them talking about how different it was, listening to, and, and how, how some of them responded very well to certain narrators and not to others. So I think, it's, I think it's as, a, as subjective as the writing. Mm. Good question. Um, any other questions? There's one, yes. Yeah, so should we just do a friendly thing here and just pass it straight along so we get to the gentleman at the back? Thank you so much. Hi. Um, yeah, kind of similar to some of the first questions you had actually in here. Um, you said that some of the Vera um, TV series ones were written by other people and, and, yeah. and you've not had any input. And I noticed on the latest Shetland one, I think it's billed as based on characters by Anne Cleves. Yeah, the last how, how two Shetland uh -huh. uh, series, I had nothing. Well, uh -huh. the series three, which was the last series, I did mm -hmm. have some input because I, took the, I know the scriptwriter very well and took her up to Shetland and introduced mm -hmm. her to people. Uh, this series is written by Davy Kane, whom I've met a couple of times but don't know very well. And so, no, I, I'm just watching like you are. Mm. So, <laughs> how, so how does it feel what? to hand over things that you've created yourself to someone, e to someone else to run with from there? Yeah. I mean, does it feel like sort of letting your children go away or something like that? It is, it, is, it is it a like bit, but a, again, it's a bit like giving children up. You wouldn't give them to someone that you didn't trust. And, Depends how tired you are, to be fair. If you're handing a child over for adoption, for instance, let's move the metaphor on a bit, <laughs> then, then you've got no right to meddle, I don't think. And these, the people that I've handed mm. it over to know much more about making good television than I do. And I would rather that they had a good time making good television than stuck absolutely faithfully to the books and made a bad bit of television because that wouldn't work for either of us. Mm. And also, I think reading is so subjective, so the books don't feel like mine once they're finished and you're all reading them because the pictures that you see in your head when you're reading are very different from the pictures that I see in my head while I'm writing. And giving them up to, to a director to do some, whatever he wants with them is just taking that one step further, I think. Mm. Good question. Any other questions? We've got a couple of minutes. Probably got a couple more. Any hands up? It's quite difficult to see that. Yeah, I think there's one there. Thank you. Hi. So I watched some of the series first before I read the Shetland books. Yeah. And one of the biggest shocks for me was reading the book that was set in Fair Isle. Yeah. And I wondered why 
or how much input you had perhaps on changing Perez's background in uh, terms of the story? Um, uh, it's quite hard to talk about this without giving a spoiler, isn't it? People have not read that particular <laughs> book. Um, I chose to do that with that. that the, the Fair Isle book is called Blue Lightning and it's the fourth book. And at that point, I had decided that I, would, well, I did want to write four more books at that point. And um, fictitious happy marriages can be quite tedious <laughs> or can be quite hard to make work properly. <laughs> so I took quite drastic action. <laughs> <laughs> Does that kind of answer that, it? Yeah. <laughs> Just out of interest, I know this is a passion of Anne's. How many people have read uh, any of Anne's books that have got them at the library? Has anyone read books? Okay, that's good. That's not that's not bad, is it? Yeah. You're happy with that? Yeah, I just think that we need to support our libraries because if we don't, in lots of communities, they're the only access to the arts that lots of people have, and if we don't, if we don't support them, they won't be used. And I think if everybody in a community were a library member, councils would be less likely to shut them. So do go along and, and join and borrow books from them. And I know I don't get quite so much money, but that's fine. It's all right. <laughs> okay with that. There will be a new generation of readers yeah. coming along who will still be passionate about reading and books. This, the, the, the UK generates more than £8 million an hour from the creative industries. And closing libraries seems to be a bit stupid economically as well as turning us all into philistines you'll have because a lot of time to go to the library when you're retired he's <laughs> <laughs> not like what, any of these what, what ask Anne what my house is like just now i mean there'll be a lot of a lot of time will have to be spent putting it putting it to rights i think uh, you've probably you've probably got a fair few books to read in your house already there's a, there's a few books there right enough how many people here are members of a book club hands up oh, how many of you read books at the book club? <laughs> How many of you drink wine at the book club? <laughs> How many do both? It's okay. It's good. It's okay. Book clubs are big now, aren't they? Yeah, book clubs are big. And I think that's another thing that, that libraries have helped to encourage, this, this sense that reading can be social, not just individual. And that's why crime festivals are so popular, so because we go out and we meet people who have taste similar to us or we argue about the books that we like and don't like and that's that means that yeah reading Very is no, no longer <laughs> that's brilliant well listen um, uh, sadly we've run out of time we could go on for a long time i know we can a fascinating dream team as i as i call them i just want to say a huge thank you to you guys for not alone not not just least coming along this afternoon some fantastic questions but also supporting granite noir which i can tell you will be back next year which is great isn't it yeah. so that's good i know and then, I do hope you'll join us again. You might be retired by then, probably not. Um, She's speaking to you, Anne. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, just finally, please give uh, a round of applause for our wonderful guests, Anne and James. Yeah, yeah. It's a literary festival that's set in Aberdeen um, and we have just been crying out for that kind of thing 
to come back to Aberdeen. I'm Sarah Paretsky. My name is Ben Aronovich. Uh, my most recent book... I'm Denise Miner. I'm a crime writer and my latest book is called My name Conviction. is Stuart McBride. My latest book is All That's Dead. Well, crime has always been a popular genre. It's not like it's become a... 0.1% of the 0.1%. The violence, I think, is often a metaphor for something else. It's a metaphor for social rupture. Taking what we're doing now, twisting it through negativities and seeing what the You know, historically, is. noir fiction tended to focus on sex and the femme fatale. Storytelling. Storytelling has been a key part of society since society Granite started. Granite Noir is a, a place for people who take their murders seriously. So this is our fourth Granite Noir and it's the biggest and most ambitious yet. We have 59 authors from nine different countries in eight venues across the city and we've got audiences coming from as far afield as Arizona, Kentucky, and Madrid, Brussels and from Orkney to Oxford. Granite Noir seems to really have captured the imagination of the city and it's making a name for itself as one of Scotland's signature book festivals. That there has never been a better time for crime fiction or in, indeed a time when crime fiction is more needed than now. It's just really important um, for Granite Noir to be rooted locally in the city. Well, I mean, I think festivals like Granite Noir are brilliant for bringing in new audiences. You see far younger people at, at festivals than you do at normal book events. I think it's, uh, I think in this particular case, I think it draws the, the crime gravity away from Edinburgh and Glasgow and, and up further north expands how you're thinking about um, about the books themselves, both as a reader and as a writer. Granite Noir is inspired by our fascination with crime writing. We are reading about it, we're watching it on TV, we're listening to podcasts, and our homegrown Scottish authors are leading the way. Authors like Ian Rankin, Denise Miner, Chris Brookmeyer, Val McDermott, Stuart McBride. I mean, I think what crime fiction does that's really unique is it takes quite often a fairly staid audience to a point of social rupture. And in a lot of ways, that's what crime fiction does. It, it, crime fiction talks about the kind of monsters that we as a society are scared of. The things that worry and scare us as a society, crime fiction is ideally placed to explore and examine. You, a place where you feel very vulnerable, very exposed, very at risk. And crime fiction tends to exploit those feelings of, of vulnerability and then to help you try to find a place where you can knit it back together. So this weekend I've learned so much about crime fiction and writing and why people are so fascinated in it. And it's the psychology behind the realisation that everybody has the capability to be good or bad inside them. So everyone has a Jekyll and a Hyde. Well, if it, 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 these things wouldn't happen without arts organisations um, organising them. They just wouldn't. It is so, so, so vital that that these organisations and the councils that support them actually do consider that the cultural life of the city is as important as everything else. And that's exactly what the support from Aberdeen Performing Arts 
in getting this festival up and keeping it up does. You know, it, this nourishes the soul of the people.